So as I said, this is a two or three week series of love and what is love. And when I hear that question, what is love, um, you're going to get a peek into my brain because I always think about this when I hear that question. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We cut it off short because we didn't want to get copyright pinged on our Facebook stream, so hopefully that's still working back there. That's, you never know when that's going to happen. Um, but that's what I think about what is love. I think about that song by Hathaway and the Night of the Roxbury, an incredible work of art that movie was. <laughs> but seriously, what is love? I mean, it's such a nebulous idea. It's this ethereal thing that you can't really put your finger on sometimes. I mean, is it is the definition of love sort of like a moving target and it's just sort of subjective and it's whatever you want it to be and it's morphing and changing all the time? Or is love uh, something that's fixed and grounded? I mean, one thing I have learned is that we, uh, we can become more like what we love. When I lived in Asheville, uh, when I was in school there, uh, people there rightly love the outdoors. Um, I, I do too. And many of them would dress as if they were ready for a spontaneous hike, really at any moment. Um, any moment, you could just be in the National Forest, zip away pant legs and Gore-Tex and Camelback and Chacos and whatever. I mean, you can look at people and kind of tell where their priorities are, what their love is. And I heard a pastor give a sermon one time where he said he decided for a whole year to pray, God, help me love you the way the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Holy Spirit. Help me love you in that way. That's a beautiful prayer idea. And he prayed that for a, for a year, he said, and as he did it for many months, his friends started commenting on him and saying, you know what, you seem different. Like, you seem like more effervescent or something, like kind of shiny, you know? And he was just, that was his heart. That was where he was going, you know? You could tell by what he loved, you could kind of tell why, by who he was, you could tell what he loves. You know, the Greek language had four words or more for the word love. Uh, Agape, which many of us may be familiar with, when Jesus commands us to love each other, that's what's in that, the word agape is there in the Greek, uh, which literally means more of like a selfless, servant-hearted love. That's the type of love he commands uh, us to have for one another. There's also eros, which is the erotic or romantic form of love, phileo, the, the brotherly or um, uh, sort of love through siblings, that sort of love and affection, and storge, which is like f- love of family uh, relationships. So they have like all these facets you capture of love because there's different, you know, angles to it. But English, we have one word. Like that's it. It's kind of interchangeable, you know? Uh, you could say I love my wife, but I also love cheeseburgers. It's like, eh, not quite the same thing. You know, before I marry anyone in a marriage ceremony, I always want to sit down with them and have multiple counseling sessions. Some of you are probably in the room, actually. I've married some of you. And we would sit down, and, and one thing I tell potential couples is there will be days when you do not feel loving in your marriage. And some of them are like, what? <laughs> but yeah, there's days you won't feel it. There's days where your love may feel conditional, there's days where you, your love, your well of love runs dry and you don't know what to do or how to do it. Uh, that 
And I really tell them, you can't love the other person as much as they deserve. Only God can do that through you. But you, ultimately, my love runs out. My love gets conditional. I get tired. God's love never runs out. The well of his love is always readily available in the center of your relationship. You can call upon by faith. So, regard, if you think about that, true love is more than just emotion. It's more than liking. It's more than circumstance. Really, love is sacrifice. It's choice. It's faith in action for someone or something else. So the real question of love, real question of life, is not what will we do, but what will we love? And how will we love? Because people will always, always do what is most important to them. Now, many today will confuse lust with love. We think that if you lust after something, therefore I'm in love with it or with them. But lust really says, what can you give me, right? It says, what, what will you do for me? Not what will I do for you? How will I serve you? No, what will you give me out of this transaction? Very much a one-way street. That's not love. It's not love. Now, love presents a quandary for someone who has a, maybe an evolutionary understanding of human life. Um, because if life is all about survival of the fittest, then why in the world would you love anyone or anything at all if we're simply trying to evolve and get ahead? Why does love even exist at all? Now, so that you could really say the very presence of love itself is a great rationale for the existence of God, that it even exists at all, that God saying God is love. In order to kind of tap dance around love, some atheist authors, authors like Christopher Hitchens would have said things like, love is just a chemical reaction in the brain. Well, that's romantic, you know? I'd like a Hallmark card that says, you make my neurons rub together. (laughs) So, lost that argument, Hitchens. Love is so much more than just a chemical reaction in the brain. Now, yeah, when you're attracted to somebody, there's definitely pheromones going on, no doubt. But the virtue we call love is not just a chemical reaction. Love is seeking the good of the other, even when you don't feel like it. For example, when Jesus says, love your enemies, the implication there is when you don't feel like it, when it's not convenient. That's love. That's faith in action. When it's not something you feel or want to do, that doesn't mean it's bad. Like when you, some, all of the, those of us who are married, who have been married, and you took marriage vows, you didn't vow your feelings for the next 60 years, right? That's not what marriage vows are supposed to be. You're not vowing feelings, you're vowing, you're really just, all you can really vow is behavior, right? The ideals of behavior. Because the only reason you need a vow is for when the feelings go away, Right? so that it holds you in line with what you said you would uphold. That's love. Now, it's not, it's not, it's not, love is not just a constraining thing, it's, but it's a choice. It's a self-giving action. It's, of course, the ultimate form of sacrifice. In Jesus, Jesus said, you lay down your lives for your friends. That's the ultimate sort of love. You know, you don't need a vow when you start dating, you know, or when the pheromones are kicking. You don't really need vows at that point. Um, no, it's, it's for later in life to hold you in that place of love. You know, I've told this story before, but I met a guy right before we, I got married, and he said, I said, yeah, I'm getting married this year, and he goes, oh, really? 
Now, he was divorced twice. <laughs> so, yeah, get ready. He's like, you see, when they put that ring in your finger, it's called the world's smallest handcuff, brother. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> I, taking advice from you is telling me more a lot, a lot more about you than helping me, okay? If you see the vows of marriage as a constraint... You're coming from a place of lust. You're coming from a place of selfishness. It's really, the vows give freedom. The, in, within those vows gives you that place to love, to be free, in love, to serve, to give. Without those, all bets are off. So the true definition of love begins and ends with God and God's word. That is the ultimate authority when we, how we define what love is. Over and over again, especially the apostle John 1 John 4, 16, God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. Man, I, I could read 1 John over and over again, and the depth of understanding he had about the love of Jesus just surpasses anything I see in American Christianity sometimes. I mean, how intimately he understood the love of God. I invite you to read 1 John 4 in your own time, or just the whole epistle. And just try and get into his head and see where he's coming from. That he has such a rich understanding of the love of God, more than I have time to get into today. But we do know that he clearly says God is love. Undeniably true. But it's important to note, A.W. Tozer makes this point as well, that yes, God is love, but love is not God. God is love, love is not God. That love is an essential attribute attribute of God, perhaps maybe the most essential, but it is not God. God is love, love is not God. For example, if you were to say of a person, a man or a woman, you know what, they are kindness incarnate. Like, they're, they're just the most kind person I've ever met. You're not saying that person is synonymous with kindness. You're not saying they are kindness itself. You're saying that kindness is very much something true of that person, but they're not all kindness. In the same way, love is something true of God, very much so, but it's not all that God is to diminish the other characteristics and qualities of who God is. So God is love, but love is not God. You don't want to minimize his other qualities. So Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, really, uh, he lays out the two greatest commandments. And it's a really interesting story in Matthew 22 because Jesus and these religious leaders are having this dialogue really a debate, and it's a back and forth. And they're really trying to trip him up and get him caught on his own words, really to kill him, as it says. So it's a pretty heavy debate. (laughs) There's a lot on the line here. And so the first, the Pharisees come at Jesus, and every time Jesus has a mic drop moment, he just owns them every single time, of course, because he's Jesus. And so the Pharisees come at him and go, hey, this coin, this coin has Caesar's face on it. They knew that. Jesus, whose face is on this coin? Caesar's. Who do we pay taxes to, God or Caesar? So they're thinking, hey, if he says, either way, he sounds like a traitor. He's either a sellout to the Romans or the Romans will come and kill him because he says, no, don't give taxes to the Romans, right? Perfect plan. Well, what does he say? Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give unto God what's God's. Jesus one, Pharisees zero, right? Then the Sadducees come who don't believe in the resurrection, which is why they're sad, you see. That's the old church joke. 
Got to use it. Got to use it once a year, sorry. That old chestnut, I dusted off. But they're sad, you see. They don't believe in the bodily resurrection. They come to Jesus with this crazy scenario that's like, okay, Jesus, picture this. There's a woman who's married to a man. Got it. Okay, the man dies. She marries the, other, the dead guy's brother. And so it goes until she marries all seven of the brothers who have died. She's a widow seven times, okay? Jesus is literally thinking, this has never happened in the history of the world. He, he would know. So, Jesus, who is married in heaven? Who is she married to? Right? And they're thinking, hey, we got him. And he says, well, actually, no one's married in heaven. <laughs> I've been there, I know. Now, some people hear that and you go, that's kind of a bummer. I would like to be married to my wife or my husband forever. But it's not about in heaven. It's not about what you're missing out on. It's about that what, 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 what's reading between the lines. What is actually better in heaven relationally than here on earth? That what is yet to come is actually even better than the greatest intimacy of marriage. Right? So anyway, he, he, Jesus too, religious people, zero. Right? So then the third question is the Pharisees come back. Okay, the 613 Old Testament laws, Jesus, which is the greatest? So no matter which way he answers, we can stone him for heresy. We can finally get this guy and get him out of our, out of our hair. And this is where we pick up in Matthew 22, verse 34. So when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, that's being generous, I would say he owned them, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and demands of the prophets are based, or other translations say, they hang on these commandments. So he is taking that the second commandment is as important as the first. He's taking commandments from Leviticus and Deuteronomy 6.5. And he is saying, all the law and the prophets that you know by memory hangs on these two principles. Like a hanger. Imagine a coat hanger. You got love God, love your neighbor. And all the law of the prophets are literally hanging on those two principles. If you don't love God and love your neighbor, the second is equal as the first. Then it all falls apart. It's all just man-made righteousness. It's all just pride. But if it's about loving God and loving the world around you, it comes to life. It has, a, it has its initial purpose. But if, or if, but if one's too top-heavy or one doesn't balance the other, it gets out of, out of whack. And so it all hangs on those two things. So as I was looking at this idea of love God with all your heart and soul and mind, I wanted to kind of dive into real quick these three words and what do they actually mean? Because when we, we, many of us have grown up in church, we've heard those words many times, and we think, okay, how do I love God with my heart, right? What does that mean? How do I do that? Well, we know the Greek word cardia, heart, cardiac, uh, it means so much more than just a physical organ. That in the Christian, Judeo-Christian understanding of the heart, it is actually the seat and the center of your emotions. That is essentially what the heart is. So when you've gone through a breakup or something like that and you feel your heart is broken, well, there you go, right? You emotionally feel distraught and distressed and broken. Your heart is broken. So yes, but Jesus is saying, love God with all your heart. 
Well, sometimes your heart doesn't feel very good, does it? Sometimes your emotions are up and down. That's okay. He's saying love God with all of your emotion, with all of your heart, soul, mind, with all, with all the good and the bad and the ugly. Like even John Wesley encouraged people to sing lustily in worship. <laughs> we should start saying that, Keith. Sing lustily, everybody. But you're, you see, he's saying use all of your emotion. Get behind it, right? It is wor- he's worthy. He's worthy of loving him with all that we have, even when you don't feel like singing, even when you don't feel like praising, even when you don't feel like praying. In that empty place where you feel nothing, you can still love God with your heart, with your emotions. And yes, they're up and down. So love God with your heart, okay. Love God with my soul. Okay, what is the soul? I watched that Disney movie with my kids. Soul, really kind of cute. Um, I like the part where he eats pizza and it passes right through his body. That's the funniest moment in the whole movie. Now it's called Soul, and they, they, kinda, they, they get around the whole heaven and hell thing, but they really have some interesting takes on it. But what is the soul? The soul, the soul is essentially the immaterial part of who you are that is essentially your personality. It is the part of you that makes you, you. Utterly unique in all of the universe is your soul. And I would say more precious to God than anything else your body, mind, and soul are. But it's the immaterial part of who you are. Now, in the New Testament, it uses the word soul and spirit interchangeably. Some theologians have tried to separate those two things out, and you get into a lot of problems when you do that. I think they're, I think they're interchangeable, soul and spirit. It's two terms of the same idea. Okay, the Bible is not a book of metaphysics, but you can deduce metaphysics from it a lot. Obviously, through the bodily resurrection of Jesus, we get a lot of understanding. Um, but for example, um, if I were to ask you, do you have a body? You would say yes. And if I were to say to you, do you have two hands? You would say yes. Now, if I said to you, do you have three bodies then? You would say, no. What are you, a quack? Get out of here. No, are you crazy? What, I'm, what you're saying is though, you have different parts of a holistic entity. There are different parts that all intertwine with one another. You're, they're all part of your body, but they do different, different things. That's like how it is with your soul. It's part of who you are. And if we get to the idea of a soul, it's that you are a two-fold creature. There's a physical part and an immaterial part that you can't see. The soul has many parts to play in the nature of who, who we are, and one of those is that you can commune with God spiritually. So in the classic Wesleyan question of how is it with your soul is such a vitally important question today, every day. Because we may go to the gym, or we may work out, we may try to eat healthy, or not. We, <laughs> that's me lately. Um, we can read books and challenge our intellects, but when it comes to the soul, some of us are like, I don't know what to do with that. We don't really take care of it. But when you ask yourself, how is it with your soul, or someone else asks you that question, and then you get to talk about, well, my soul today is, is this way or that, it's very healthy. Um, then thirdly, mind. How do you love God with your mind? That he's saying you can love God with your choices, with your will, with your intellect, with what you think about, with what you read, with what you ingest, and choose to take into your, your, your life. You can love God in that way. 
or not. You know, John Wesley had great things to say about staying in love with God. Beautiful teachings that he called obeying the ordinances of God. Very much an 18th century language. But that tending to the ordinances of God help us stay in love with God. Again, it's sort of like the vows of a marriage. It helps keep you in that stream of God's love to remind you what is good and righteous and true and life-giving. And these ordinances, as he calls them, are really what we would call spiritual disciplines. They're aspects that you choose to engage in to help you stay in love with God, that engage your heart, soul, and mind. For example, many of you go to Bible studies each week, or you go to a men's or a women's group, or you go to Vespers on Wednesday night, or you're here right now, or all these different things. If, if you had a week without those experiences, it would be markedly different than a week with them, wouldn't it? You would feel the difference. I remember in college when I had a, a long period where I just sort of walked away from the church for a while, for a couple months, and I had nothing to do with you know, FCA or campus ministries or anything. And after many months, I walked back into the room where they were meeting, and they were singing a praise song, which back then was involved in overhead projector. Remember those? Real hot and loud and full of dead bugs, and yeah. Well, anyway, someone's up there singing a song, and I walk into this room, and as immediately as I walked in, I could, it was like water to my soul. I could just feel it. So, I mean, a week without those experiences is very much more dry than with them. By keeping the ordinances, which he would also call means of grace, mediums through which the love of God travels, these mechanisms that help us stay in love with God by engaging your heart, soul, and mind. There are things like this that he listed off. They're not an exhaustive list, but it's things like the public worship of God, the ministry of the word, whether reading alone or expounded in a situation like this, the supper of the Lord, which we'll do in a moment, family and private prayer, searching the scriptures, fasting or abstinence. There's so much more, but... These are all means of grace that help us stay in love with God. And he's really saying staying in love with God doesn't happen by accident, does it? It has to be a choice that we make. It's really the difference of looking at a river and, or getting in it. Like, my wife is from Valacruces. Anybody ever been in that place? Probably the most closest place to heaven on earth. And everyone keeps saying that. That's why there's so many people there now. <laughs> 20 years ago, it was like a ghost town. Um, but we, we go up there frequently, and we go and get in the Watauga River. Even in, like, August, it will, it's bitingly cold. I mean, woo! Um, but, you know, you get in and go tubing, you know, skip rocks, you know, all that sort of stuff. Being in the river is much different than sitting on the shoreline and just watching it. It's the difference of perceiving something. Yeah, I know that's true. God is love of perceiving it and actually experiencing it, right? That the difference of those two things is dramatically different. So right now in worship, you are here or at home and you are engaging heart, soul, and mind. You are engaged. You're in the flow. You're in the stream of God's grace. You're planting yourself in his presence. It is your choice that has done that. You have brought yourself here. These experiences they place you in the love of God and help you love God. And as we approach the Lord's table, 
the Lord's table is really an invitation to all people just to let God love you, right? Just to let him in. You know, sometimes we have to, you have to allow, you have to give God permission. You have to let God love you and surrender in that way. And as Pastor Ken comes up and helps leads us in the great Thanksgiving,